I kind of don't need to preach after that song. Somebody's thinking, okay. <laughs> this story of the transfiguration, uh, it's so foreign. It's like, okay, here's an old story and some magic happens, that guy, you know, in the, in the images, it doesn't say Jesus floated in the air, but in the images, it always seems, Jesus always seems to be somehow floating. <laughs> and there's amazing, I mean, he's already on a mountain. Does he really need to float more? I don't know. But there's this moment, it's called transfiguration. Um, I don't know if any of you read Calvin and Hobbes uh, as I, well, yeah, okay. My best buddy Tim and I were real big fans, and we would, um, back in the 80s, there was something called transparencies. Some of you know of what I speak. And so we would take, uh, in the Calvin and Hobbes books, there would be certain pages where they have kind of blown up figures. My favorite ones, of course, are Calvin and Hobbes dancing, right? And we'd, um, we'd photocopy them, uh, my mom's work, onto a transparency. And then somehow we had an overhead projector at my house, so we'd put the transparency on there and put it on the wall and then put like newsprint up on the wall and like trace out like these, you know, really large three, four foot size Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin and Hobbes was awesome. And they had this thing, Calvin did. Um, it was it might have looked, if you were to look at it, like a cardboard box. But if you were to look closely, you would understand that it was a transmogrifier. And which means when you go into this thing, you go in as one thing and you come out as another. You go in and then, you know, the, of course there were appropriate dials and switches and, uh, you know. Uh, so, you know, Hobbes would go in and Calvin would adjust everything and he'd come out a snail or whatever, right? Transfiguration, um, if you've seen Harry Potter, it's a, it's a whole class Minerva McGonagall teaches, you know, changing one thing into another. Transfiguration is about changing from one thing to another. And the irony of it in this story is that it's making the opposite point. It's making the point that Jesus in glory connected to in the most deep and you know sort of mythically powerful ways to the identity of his people to affirming that God has been with them from the beginning and working to give them wisdom toward life and Moses and working to draw them back toward life through Elijah like there's these really important figures in you know the Jewish mythos right and here they are camping out with Jesus up on the mountain and Jesus is, it's this incredibly beautiful thing. But it's really not about a change. It's about a bit of revelation. That this work that Jesus is doing in the day to day, this starting with his, you know, depending on the gospel, you know, barely surviving, barely escaping murder, um, situation with Herod um, under threat of empire in a situation of poverty and struggle that's his birth story right and then that 
carries right through to the end where he ends up a martyr. He ends up, you know, murdered by the state um, in, a, in a situation in both places of seeming powerlessness, seeming indignity, seeming injustice. And of course, there's real aspects to which that is true, given his social situation and whatnot. But then this transfiguration is saying, no, the poor are not powerless. Jesus, in his daily life and work with ordinary people and people under oppression, you know, working with them to move with them, draw them towards life and freedom and empowerment, to draw them towards their own dignity in God. Um, yeah. That work is glory work. It's being revealed on the mountain to have been all along something beautifully and wondrously and divinely powerful. And so there is this thing that Jesus, the bookends of Jesus' life with this sort of center point on the mountain, there's an arc that we're supposed to travel in our minds as we hear the story. And it goes all the way back to Moses. It probably goes all the way back to Eden. It goes back to the Big Bang. And it goes forward into the question that is always before us is, will we move with God towards life? Will we accept God's beautiful vision for what life is and does and how it works and who gets to have it? Will we do that? And it comes to us in the ordinary, God's salvation, the mountain peak revelation of, of you know, these similar to the Moses story where his, you know, his clothes are transfigured, his face is shining. It's this symbol of like, this is what God does. This is what God is doing. This is who God is working through in this moment. A vagabond rabbi under the thumb of an empire. And somehow God wants to be born and has been born and will be born and is born into that. I grew up in religion. My dad was a pastor somewhat, you know, first part of my growing up, and then when he wasn't a pastor, he was working for a Christian nonprofit. And pretty much everything I learned in that context pointed to the special uniqueness of Jesus. And so the transfiguration becomes the proof. Like he might seem ordinary, like all this stuff, but this is the real story. Like he, this is the real story of who Jesus really is. He's really this, you know, divinely, you know, not actually like how it seems. And I think we were reading it backwards. It's how it seems, all of these ordinary movements and conversations and learning and work and play, all of that is connected to and intimately connected to and undetachable from the question of God's transfiguring, transformative life and light and power in the world. 
And the thing that is unique about Jesus and the Jesus story is that it's so explicit in drawing these things together. I mean, the Christian church, uh, a couple centuries later, five centuries later, um, four-ish, decided that Jesus, you couldn't separate an idea of Jesus the human from Jesus divinity. And you got to hold these things right together because they're inextricable. They're un, you can't disentangle them. The unlike threads are woven together into one beautiful thing. The church in the East, the Orthodox Church, their whole idea of spirituality is the notion of the, the person, you, me, ordinary people, being drawn into the life of God. And that process, they call it theosis, which is sort of from the Greek word for God, right? Becoming part of who God is and what God does. And so this mountaintop experience of Jesus is there in the church in the East, and I think in the church in East End, this church, we can see, we have the opportunity to see that we are being drawn up into the divine life, in divine light, towards peace. And on a week like this, it's almost impossible to know. It is almost impossible to know that it is not all going to hell in a handbasket, including me. I mean, maybe not. Maybe you're like, no, I'm cool. Um, but on a week like this where it feels like the, the pressurized violence of the world is just what normal is and always has been and always will be. Into that week and this body in the midst of that week, God says no. It's not what it seems. This life that each little thing that adds up to ourselves, our lives, wants to be and is in this movement towards God. God is drawing us up the mountain. We will taste, the song said, salvation as we climb the mountain of God. I'm not saying I don't think Jesus is unique. Jesus is. There is some divine singularity in the person, historical person of Jesus, in the Christ that he becomes. There is something absolutely integrated and powerful. But if the Eastern Church is right, and if the early Anabaptists are right, we have this opportunity to walk the path that with Christ. To walk the path towards life without fear, without playing and being cowed by all of the seeming threats of violence and darkness around us. Everything that leads to death in all of its forms, most of which are really ordinary. Most of which 
we walk that line every day. And it's that daily walk that God wants to draw us toward light, toward a more open understanding that we are being carried. We, individuals, we, this community, we, the whole cosmos, the whole earth. Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. It's like a door being opened, our minds being opened, that the whole world with us in it is being carried toward life, seeming though it may be to that to be impossible news. It's the real story. And we get to be drawn into it. And so on a daily basis, we have to find ways to tune into it. And that, I think, is one of the primary callings of what I do as a pastor to shepherd a community here where our vision is a little bit more infiltrated by God's hope. The things we say to one another and do together and sing together and think together and talk together, the the prayers that we offer, the play, the rest, the work, all of it, if we're sort of where we need to be, from my perspective, will be opening us up to this radical hope that God wants to be born again in us, with us, and through us. That was always the question when I was growing up. Are you born again? And my thinking has shifted to where I think God's the one who wants to be born again. And again, and again, in you, and in me, and in us together. And boy, on a week like this one, if you've turned the news on at all, we need it. And we have the opportunity to be midwives. One of our other songs that we sang today speaks of us as being midwives of justice, the ones through whom God is going to do God's work. My deep confidence, a kind of hope that goes beyond optimism or speculation, is that we are that people and will continue to deepen that work in our life together. to receive instead of acquire the gifts of God's life. Amen.